Huey? He calls. Player. Next up. You're low. That's what I'm down. Right. Start with the, uh, the ball guy, the most dangerous player in the game. Absolutely right. Percentage player doesn't take many chances, right? Uh, no flair. Guy, I say, is part of a two or three man combination. No sweat, but you find him after the fourth card. You're not in the hand unless you got the nuts, right? Oh, cowboy. I don't know. Lyndon Johnson's definitely is here. I figure uh, he owns a piece of the town. Haberdashery. It's like he sells cowboy hats. That's right. It's his rhythm. Absolutely right. But with your natural ability and your strength, you don't have to let him have much of a talking. Right. Kid, seen the Cincinnati kid too many times, right? So he's been trying to beat this game before he's born, right? Get him off the specs. It's a doctor, right? The doctor's been here playing this game forever, right? He'd rather lose a patient than a hand. Very good. Not much of a problem. You don't want to get involved too much. Red coat. Red coat. Well, my call is small time booster, right? That's your chair, right? One time buy-in used to be a cha-cha dancer. I don't know. I don't know, but that's, that guy has fallen out, and that's where you're going to be sitting. Empty chair. Oh, who could tell? Bill Luck. Very tall stack of chips, right? A little impressive. I don't know, unless it's Claude Rains and the Invisible Man. If you see your chips floating up away from you, you know the game is too tough for us. We go in when we hit something else, right? Right. Out of bright eyes. Welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, James Kent. And with me is good old friend, Bill. Bill from Queens is here, sitting in the chair. How's it going there, Bill? Uh, it's going great, Jimmy. Uh, thanks again for, for giving me the call, giving me the tap. I was very excited to uh, <laughs> to show up this week. Uh, so th- so just, yeah, put me in, coach. Ready to go. Good yeah, to, you're ready good to, to play you. today. Yep. Yes, yes, I am. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's a beautiful gray day out here in Queens. It's pretty gray here too. I mean, and it's very early. It's early on Saturday, you know. So my 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 voice is more. It's more of this vein. Where's Gans? Look, asshole! <laughs> you just took a shot at me. I think you know where Gans is. Is that your uh, Nick Nolte like uh, having coffee? Like and- when, I don't like when people get shot with my gun. <laughs> We ain't brothers. We ain't partners. We ain't friends. <laughs> if this doesn't go down, if this doesn't go down right, you're gonna be sorry you ever met me. <laughs> I'm already sorry. <laughs> that you're uh, Nick Nolte, like uh, you know, taking a crap in the morning voice. <laughs> yeah, here's the uh, here's the one that you used to always say. Here's your goddamn dinner. Here's your goddamn dinner, convict. <laughs> <laughs> You're hungry? I'll get you something to eat. <laughs> or get right. some candy bar. That's right. It's right before their big fight. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's been on, uh, I think it's on Amazon Prime. I was watching it. It is on recently. Amazon Prime. It uh, is. There's just, you know what? Uh, and I was reading about it. There's one thing I really like about the way it was filmed. It, well, it has this uh, more of an old school look that doesn't happen too often. It's It's got, it's kind of shot with those like long lens cameras. Yep. And... It's shot with 
uh, it was actually shot with a film stock that Kodak, of course, doesn't make anymore. And mm-hmm. it was, it didn't, it, it had a combination of like, you could shoot in low light, but it also didn't have as strong a grain, um, but it was certainly grainier, but it, what it did was it allowed them to uh, shoot even in the daylight without a lot of lighting setups. Right. And so like there's that great scene that I just watched with uh, right after uh, the cops get shot where, where Ermin Trout, poor Ermin Trout comes down the stairs and he doesn't have any bullets in the gun. Yes. And, and he's like, don't, don't you, you do don't, it. Don't you do it. Don't you do it. Don't you do it for me. Yeah. That's the greatest. <laughs> I love it. Um, and... <laughs> And then he goes to the police station afterwards, and believe it or not, all the stuff that happens at police station is all one shot. Right. And him walking through. Yeah. And, you know, I like scenes like that, that it, it feels very real. Like, it feels like this is what might go on in a real police station. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, honestly, 48 Hours is, is beautifully shot. And, and particularly when you compare it to, like, Walter Hill later on got this sort of high gloss look a little bit later in the nineties and like another 48 hours has that sort of high gloss look that looks like really terrible. I mean, it's a terrible movie anyway. Um, but I mean, just the look in and of itself. And I really like the kind of grittiness of uh, Walter Hill's earlier stuff. Yeah. Eddie Murphy did two of the worst sequels I've ever seen. One was another 48 hours. And then the other was Beverly Hills cop three. Where, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And that yeah. was really where people lost a lot of faith in him. He was so good, but you, he, he was willing to take paycheck roles. And that, you know, he just, over the years- He had a lot of people to take care of. Yeah, he had a big entourage. And a lot of what he has, and he has a big family, just like you, Bill. Love big, yes, big family. Exactly. <laughs> 6,000 kids. <laughs> ah, no. That's why I'm going to be starring in Beverly Hills Cop 7. Oh, jeez. <laughs> hey, um, you know, uh, so uh, this is just a random, a random one to throw out. I don't know if you know this or not, but it's one of my okay. favorite little things. It popped into my head, so we'll see if see if you know this one. Any more of your shenanigans, Ziggler? And I'll have the deed to the Moulin Rouge. <laughs> So that's um, who, who? Who's the guy again? I don't know who that guy is, but the, <laughs> he's the financier in uh, yeah. the Moulin Rouge. Any more of your shenanigans, <laughs> and I'll have the deed to the Moulin Rouge. <laughs> yeah, I, I I have no idea who that guy that's is. That's a but daffy that's movie. Right. Yeah, and then um, uh, it's a little bit funny. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that that. <laughs> You know, there's something about that movie that you, it's kind. Of, I feel like it's a train wreck. You kind of watch it anyway, but uh, I, I think it's fu- I think it's fun. It's yeah. like, <laughs> but uh, you and McGregor, uh, but, but, I, but I haven't seen it in 20 years. Oh, I recently and recently, like like two years ago, uh, I watched like half of it, the first half. It gets a little long in the second half, but uh, yeah, there are a lot of fans of that movie. Uh, no, I know, um, I know. For some reason, I associate it with like the War on Terror. I don't know why. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because it's it's this weird thing where after nine eleven, which of course you know you you were you were there, you mm-hmm. you, you you saw everything happen, um, and I'm not making a joke. I mean, that's that's you you really were. There's this weird time of like, what the hell happened before 9-11? You know, you can't really remember like what happened. Well, Moulin Rouge happened. That was the summer right before. It was the summer of 2001. 
Was and, that when it was? Yeah. I mean, for some reason, I just remember the DVD around that time and just like, it, it, you know, being on and, you know. Isn't that, funny? Just, uh, Isn't that funny how like there's probably certain things that like stick out in your brain of like all of this stuff was swirling around right afterwards because it was such a strange time. Right. And that was, it was kind of like background noise to like what was going on at that time. Yeah. I mean, it must've been, you know, surreal for you and and your family. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. It was very bizarre. Very bizarre. You know, it was bizarre for everybody. It was. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) But um, I, I gotta tell you, I, uh, do you have to tell me? Yeah, I do. Okay. Maybe I don't. Maybe I don't. No, you do. I, just, I thought that I thought that was um just great though, that random impersonation you oh, did. Thank you know, you. I thought we were gonna go for a whole Nick Nolte thing because I could just keep going. You know, even Oh, do you have more voice. Nolte? I mean I do oh, have I the do. I do have the one from the movie, of course I used to this was because around the time where we lived together and I and I just hated that movie so much was Lowenstein <laughs> <laughs> Prince of Tides. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Where he's, uh, he takes the uh, apologize to your wife. See, you know more than me. I, did you ever see that movie again after that year? Or no, no, it's a terrible never. movie, right? Never, never. It was just she was miscast in her own movie. She should not have been in that movie. Like, well, who should have played it then? I, I don't know, but it, it was just like the idea that he was going to fall for his. Well, first of all, falling for your therapist is wrong. You're not supposed to do that. Uh, so but, I hear. Yeah. But but the fact is that they had zero chemistry, and there was just no way that he was going to fall in love with her. And then she puts her son in the movie. He was annoying too. Oh, that's right. That's right. Elliot. Yeah, Elliot. Uh, Elliot or uh, Jason. Jason. Yeah, 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 Jason yeah, yeah, Gould. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, 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 um, yeah. Uh, well, okay, you know, it's funny. We'll, I don't think we're going to do this right this second, but, 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 but put a pin in the Gould factor because we're going to get yes. to, we're going to get to Elliot Gould <laughs> in a little bit in the program. Um, but, uh, you know, you had said, uh, I guess you responded to my episode where we were talking about the father, uh, not the one yes. that you and I did, but when I later, you know, we talked about the father several weeks on the show. Well, I didn't, because I didn't see it. I didn't see the father. You did. Oh, you still we haven't spoke, seen it? Sp- no. You bastard. No, yeah. <laughs> Um, you really should. I mean, and it's funny. I, I've ragged on it. I, I've, I've beaten it down. But I mean, I did like the movie. It just I didn't love it the way that some people did. Um, right. But I think it was. Yeah. The, honestly, honestly, you didn't like your review of it. Didn't like have me jumping up and down to go see. It. Well, but uh, Teal liked it a lot. Okay. You know? Okay. So no, jump up and down because Teal liked it. Uh, <laughs> it. I did make this joke where I was doing this Anthony Hopkins. Uh, impersonation from oh, uh, Amistad, you know, was like, oh, right. <laughs> Bill, do you know where you've been? <laughs> do you know where you came from, Bill? Um, and then you said something like, you had a Hopkins that you did from- My favorite Hopkins. The Bounty. The Bounty. The Bounty is this. Mr. Fryer, sir? Mr. Fryer? God damn it, man! Don't turn your back on me, man! Damn your eyes! Oh, see, that you do the angry Hopkins, because, yeah, he, he, gets, the, the he gets bigger, Hopkins. he builds and builds. He starts off slow and he gets really angry. <laughs> right. Mr. Fletcher, sir, put your jacket on, sir. That's right. And then, uh, what's it? Uh, Mel Gibson played Fletcher Christian, right? So, so it is very uncomfortable. Mr. Mr. Fletcher, put your jacket on, God damn you! <laughs> oh. and, and the thing is, there's the moment, my favorite moment in that is when he flips out on Daniel Day-Lewis, Daniel Day Lewis is the, um, you know, at first uh, is the uh, first mate, right? You know, and um, uh, he yells at him. He's like, "Mr. Fletcher, God, don't turn your back on me! God damn your eyes!" And he turns around, and it, Miss uh, Daniel Day Lewis has this stupid ass hat on that he just <laughs> looks like. 
<laughs> absolutely ridiculous. It's one of my favorite uh, moments, you know? And uh, when he's like freaking out about this, look at this filth on the ship. <laughs> it's just uh, just fantastic. Uh, you used to do um, Anthony Hopkins in The Road to Wellville. Oh, geez. I wish you told me ahead of time. I would have tried to dust that up. Yeah, he had a weird one. I can't even. Hornflakes. 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 <laughs> um, now, I mean, I, I'll do the softer one. It's funny because everybody probably does a version of that, but I'm going to try not to do the ones that everybody else does. Oh, that. So, so no no Silence the Lambs? Well, well that's what I was going to do. Yes. Okay, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Jack Crawford must be very busy indeed if he's recruiting help from the student <laughs> body. Busy hunting that new one, Buffalo Bill. What a naughty boy he is. <laughs> that is the Duomo scene from the Belvedere. Five foot ten, strongly built. About 180 pounds, hair blonde, eyes blue, pale blue. He'd be about 35 now. He said he lived in Philadelphia, but he may have lied. That's all I can remember, Mum, but if I think of any more, I'll let you know. Oh, and Senator, just one more thing. Love your suit. <laughs> See, that's I love how you're doing the the gentle voice, which is kind of the thing that you know he has. Like, tell me about remains the, of the day. You know, oh well, I'll do day, that. Everything the, he does. Uh, I read these books, Miss Kenton, because it's my private time, and it relaxes me. <laughs> that that'd be all, Mrs. Kenton. This is my private room. Please leave me alone. <laughs> and 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 just one more thing uh, for a person such as herself, <laughs> just he has a, but oh. which is he, he has a little bit more of an edge with her. But then when you see him like speaking to uh, James Fox, it's like I'm afraid I cannot be of assistance in this. You know, very very like soft. Yeah, he does this. He goes, <laughs> and he starts thinking, and he's like. <sighs> And you can't tell whether or not he doesn't have the educational experience to be able to comment or he doesn't want to say what he really thinks, doesn't want to insult. It, it's such a great it's just, performance. Well, it's not his place. It's yeah. like, you know, I'm I'm sorry. I'm programmed not to respond in this but, way. But, but, but what do you think? That's what, uh, when you have, uh, what's his face there? Uh, the guy from uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral there. Um, That's right. He comes right. in. Well, uh, tell me, Steven, Steve, what do you think? No, no, but you must have an opinion. Tell, tell me. These these buzzards up there, they're ready to start World War Two. That that awful raving man from Germany. Now, come on. Tell me. I, I, I watched it's very funny because I knew we were I, I saw like an interview with him and Dick Cavett in the seventies that was kind of uh, interesting. And his voice just is is incredible. I almost you know, I think about him and other Welsh actors like uh, Nicole Williamson. Yeah, absolutely love his voice, like as well, and that that kind of like nasal sound that he has really. Audrey Rose, <laughs> Audrey, Audrey Rose. Oh, yeah, here's the one thing: has he ever, ever, ever been in a comedy? I don't think so. I don't think he's ever done anything comedy. Road to Oh, well, that's like a bizarre, that's sort of like a dark kind of comedy. But like, I mean, any sort of like regular rom-com kind of thing with, you know, how like, uh, yeah, no, like Robert De Niro traded in all like, his like uh, street cred for, kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, and that's it is, but he does have a comedic edge that he throws to things sometimes. Like, remember when he was in Mission Impossible 2? He's in Mission Impossible too. I'm ta I'm talking uh, Anthony Hopkins. I know. Yeah, I'm yeah, saying yeah, he's yeah. in Mission Impossible too. Sure, I'm sure he is because he has this. Is it two or three? He has this one. I, he has this this line where you know uh, you know Tom Cruise is like, well, that's going to be really difficult, and he's like, that's why it's called Mission Impossible, not Mission Difficult. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, Anthony Hopkins. And of course, you know, what was one of his earliest performances you may remember? He was I in, do. He was one of the sons of Lion in Winter. Lion in Winter. So and that's great. We have him to the adult. He's like, you loved me. And it's just, never. I don't remember which one it is, but like the, the scene where they're all like each one, like they're like hiding. They're behind. all hiding behind the curtains and, and Timothy Dalton <laughs> has arranged it and they're all listening in on it. And Catherine Hepburn is like, well, that's what the tapestries are there for. <laughs> like. Uh, that movie is the best. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Actually, that could do with a remake. I wonder. Oh, maybe. you need a remake. Okay, I don't know. Hey, Spielberg, <laughs> get out the West Side Story. <laughs> I'm just surprised it hasn't been remade. You know, since they remake everything. <sighs> True, but maybe they just don't have the uh, the actors. Nah, I'm yeah. sure they could. We don't have any Peter O'Toole <laughs> to go around playing Henry. <laughs> Played him in two movies, Beckett. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And only a couple of years difference, you know, can I tell yes. you? It's yes, looking yes, a little yes. worse for wear, you know, mm. that, that lifestyle. But yeah, I mean, aside from maybe being in Transformers 5, I don't know if Anthony Hopkins was ever in a comedy. <laughs> um, and- <laughs> Is he in Transformers 5? Yeah, he's terrible. Yeah, I, the whole I, checked terrible. Out, I checked out after 4. I think I checked out after 5. Was there more? Yeah. I didn't see no, Bumblebee. I've, I've, actually, I've, actually, I've actually never seen any of them. Yeah. Not a one. Yeah. Yeah. So At some think. point, by the way, this is sort of a preview for you listener out there. There's a movie when we talk about uh, Transformers and the, and the great Michael Bay. <laughs> um, there's a movie that I found one of the worst films of all time. It's called Six Underground. And it's a Netflix movie. And I think that I have so much to say about it. I think that Teal and I are going to do a Netflix party to to break it down scene by scene um, <laughs> because it is textbook terrible. Well, I'm I'm really looking forward to that episode. I got I got to <laughs> tell you, what what do you think, by the way, in terms of uh, since we're talking about Hopkins, about um, Brian Cox? As uh, Lecter in Manhunter. Well, that you know, so it's funny. I remember when Silence of the Lambs first came out, and I'm watching. I'm like, oh my god, there's like this character is very similar because I hadn't read the books, right? I'm like, right. this this movie I watched in the '80s, Manhunter, and it it had a good, different guy playing a guy that had to be like Hannibal Lecter, and of course it, it was. And I was working at the movie theaters uh, as a teenager when Manhunter came out. It was like late summer of '87. And a bunch of us went, right. went to see it just because like, oh, well, here it's playing. And I remember thinking, wow, this is like sort of a hidden gem movie. Yes, absolutely. I saw it. I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it in video. And it was one of those um, oh, Michael Mann hidden right gems. There. Yeah, Michael Mann, Michael Mann. And they, I remember they were hyping it because of Miami Vice because Miami Vice was, I believe, still in the air. It had a very Miami Vice feel to it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dennis Farina being in it and- um, I see you're making a good connection yeah. here. <laughs> okay, you see yeah, Jimmy. Yeah, yeah. You see Jimmy. That's that's the there you movie. go. You see Jimmy. Oh, you see. That's, oh, you see. You see. Recurring guest. I like there it. You go. I okay, like where I, I, I like where your this. head's at. Okay, so yeah, so the uh, if for those who haven't seen Manhunter but saw the uh, the reboot version, do you see? Uh, do you where, see? Yeah, there's a uh, you know the killer in that movie, uh, Manhunter is played by this actor, Tom Noonan, uh, who I guess was like a frequent Michael Mann guy because he's also has a great- he's in, he's in Heat. He's got a great role in Heat. I love this actor. He's not in enough movies, in my opinion. But it's really weird is he, in the 90s, early 90s, he wrote a play and then he filmed it and mm-hmm. directed it. And it's a movie called What Happened Was- and I caught it when it first hit cable back in probably 95 or 96. And 
it's a weird film that now now is a term for a film like this called a bottle movie, right? Um, where it's just maybe one set, one location, maybe only a few actors. And he made this film, which is just – he pulled off like an amazing feat where it's just two actors. And it's kind of in real time in one little like kind of studio loft of some sort in uh, New York – and I remember thinking the movie was kind of odd at the time, but it wasn't what I expected because I think I read a review where it said that it was sort of like a, a, a date horror movie or something. And I realized right. that the person was more describing of like this, a date that kind of goes into sort of like a weird kind of a, a horrifying date kind of thing where just date gone wrong. And right. – but the movie never left me for for years. I kind of wanted to rewatch it, but it's just not a movie that ever shows up anywhere. I remember it just because it won Sundance that right. year. Did you see the movie? I never saw the movie, and I'll tell you exactly. It, <laughs> Jimmy, you know me, and um, kind of do, yeah, a little and bit. <laughs> like you know, not my. It, just from the description of it, like oh, a date, and it. Just oh, it's not your. Me. It's not your. Uh, you know, I was just. I was like, oh, come on, what is this like, Marty or like you know, or oh, David and oh, Lisa oh, or something? Oh, so do you, you get so what you I mean? Can, yeah, I didn't. So like, I was just thinking, like, you know what? I, I really, I, I really have no time for like you know, two odd oddballs kind of getting together. Oh, so that's and what you thought it was. You like. See, that's exactly <laughs> okay. what I thought it was. And I was just like, you know, I really, you know, I, I no, I, I, I just didn't. It was not on my radar. And when you suggested, because you just watched it again, well, so it's on Criterion this month, and mm-hmm. I think for those who have Criterion, you should, you really owe it to yourself to check this thing out because it is interesting. I don't know. I was going to say that is a, it's an interesting <laughs> film, and I, I liked it. A whole lot more than I liked it uh, back in 95 or 96. Uh, as a matter of fact, I thought that there's like some brilliance going on in this uh, film. And maybe yes. it's because I have more life experience. And at the time when I saw it, I, I had just moved in with my girlfriend and we, we were together for like nine years. And I guess after that, before I met my wife, I had to go through a little small series of dating, right? And the right. awkwardness of dating and um, – that I think is why I may appreciate this film a little bit more now. And what I really liked about the film besides, you know, I liked the Tom Noonan. I thought was pretty good is this performance by this actress, Karen Sillis. Yeah. She's, um, she's phenomenal. I think this is one of the great performances of the nineties. I thought it was insane. I thought it was so good. Yeah. I mean, the fact that like, quite frankly, she, you know, I mean, basically what I knew her from was she had a very tiny part in The Sopranos. She was um, uh, John Hurd's, you know, the corrupt cop. Right, like, right, you know, right. the girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and, she'd um, pop and up she had in one some scene. things. Yeah, and like, honestly, um, she was, I, I mean, it is, a, it is a phenomenal performance. Do you want to give some of the kind of details about, you know, what the... It is kind of a summary? Yeah, I mean, so you start in seeing this woman in her apartment kind of getting ready for some kind of uh, date, some dinner date. Well, like it's actually even before that, which I think is amazing. It's like her waking up in the morning, getting ready to go to work and leaving the apartment. And it's one of those, it's this sort of great thing from apartment living of yesteryear. She leaves her radio on the whole day. 
yeah. when she goes, which people used to do just to make sure that like somebody wouldn't break in. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's you have some New York insight. <laughs> yeah. So that's like, so she left, she leaves the radio on all day when she goes. Cause I mean, that's it. And you'd go by past like a lot of apartments and like the radio would be on all the time. And you would think, well, somebody's got to be home. Well, also I liked is that, uh, this apartment is a character. Yeah, 100%. And even the neighborhood itself. Well, so, I mean, I, you know, there's a reveal that happens at the end of the movie mm-hmm. that you see kind of what her surroundings are. And mm-hmm. just like everything else in the movie, it isn't what it maybe pretends to be. Um, so that's a constant thing that happens in this movie is the characters, I think, want to be something they're not. Yes. And they play up aspects of their life. And even this whole idea of, you know, we've seen things like friends. They live in these apartments that no one could ever afford. Right. And she is kind of- But uh, she's aspirational in the she's sense. Aspirational. She's aspirational. She tries to she, make her she's, apartment she's, look like it's worth a lot. <laughs> listen, listen. This is, I mean, this is part of the brilliance. I'm going to say brilliance of her performance, of the characterization of Noonan's, basically of, of um, the character and the way that she's presented is that you really kind of get the sense that she's from Long Island or Queens at a certain point, then she said. And and it, it really kind of speaks to New York, I think, of the time that she is aspirational, uh, that, that she wants to be different. And it's the whole idea. This is what like downtown Manhattan used to kind of mean to people. Yes, yes. You know, it was the idea that like you could go and so like, and and but yet at the same time, she's still who she is with her like banal taste in music, like air supply and the cat's poster. You know? <laughs> See, that's all those settings. Yes. She has the, but, but she also, doesn't she have like a- She has uh, no, but she has an MLK. Yes. Which almost like it's, but that's part of the whole kind of, if you will, I would say desire to like break out of the bridge and tunnel, kind of the racism of like the outer boroughs in Long Island. But she also can't escape her accent. No, 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 That's no, no. so great. And, and yet she's also, you can see she's trying to transform who she is in uh, her taking. She's like, oh, I, I saw this ad in The Voice, you know, and so I showed up to like take, you know, remember when people used to like go and pick up The Voice and be like, oh, wow, this thing looks kind of cool, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yet at the same time, she's genuine because she really wants to escape what she was. Yes. Yes. So she has the other thing. Yeah, we were saying. So she has this like street art painting of Martin Luther King, you know, in her apartment and and that's you know it's just such this interesting mix the character that makes her so at that and the cat poster i'm like oh my god this is brilliant yeah she's with this you know so she works you know as basically uh yeah as an administrative assistant get it right bill no sorry (laughs) no secretary um which i love that that's a scene too which is great because it's definitely something where as i got in worked in corporate world and stuff there was that you know transformation into calling uh, people executive assistants or administrative assistants right and the dialogue, and again, it was a play, and there's a little bit of play aspect to it, but I feel that Noonan, I feel like Noonan directs this very well in that it does feel like real conversation that the two people are having. And this dynamic of the fact that in some ways, right, they're in this, they're both working in this law firm, but mm-hmm. he, who's like, you know, in his like 40s, yeah. he's a paralegal. Yet he seems to be really smart, but like, who's a paralegal at, you know? A hundred percent. And that's, again, part of this whole, but she has this idea, this fantasy of who he is. And to a certain extent, he has a fantasy of who he should be. Yes. And it is, it's devastating. 
I think in terms of the, you know, what happens in, in, in with both of them. Yeah. Because he's, he's a guy who actually tries to like, he belittles her in a weird way, like he actually feels like, well, I'm too important to be here. Yes. And you're above my, I'm above your station. Yes. Um, And he tries to go on, like he's got like some book deal uh, and all this stuff. And that he's actually exposing the law firm and, you know, absolutely that he's kind of too cool for the law firm. Like he actually should be, you know, it's one of these guys who I'm sure you've met who like, I should be running. If I was running this place. Oh, I know. Yeah. (laughs) And the best part is, is that afterwards, right? He's on it. She's like, well, I I write stories too. And then we get into this thing where it's the best scene in the whole movie. Exactly. And I had remembered this for years, but I couldn't remember what, I just remembered, oh, there's a scene where the person on the date like tells this really creepy story. And then I remember like, you know, it all unfolds where she reads this story and yes. it's a really great story, right? It's so. It's, it's because, well, it's a terrible story. <laughs> it's terribly. But well, it's a, she says it's, it's a kid story. Yeah, I know. Kid, that's the thing. It's like, but I mean, I'm sure you've like had people be like, oh, hey, read my story. Hey, read my script. Hey. And you're just kind of like, Wow. Like, you know, I want to, like, give this to your therapist. Well, it was so great is that, like, in that moment, right, where he's, like, almost, he's a really tall guy, but he starts to become smaller and smaller. And he's starting to just, like, get so into, like, he's starting to hear things. And what it really (laughs) is is that, that she actually has maybe some talent and he doesn't. And then he finds out, and this is the best part. Well, A, he finds out that, you know, she's, she's actually published she's written something yeah i mean she self-published well that's what's so funny is that back then it's the idea that there would be people that would kind of like say yeah well here we'll get your book published oh if you give us some money to publish your book and you're never (laughs) supposed to do that but she actually has a physical representation of her work she's accomplished something yes yeah yeah and so you know again i just found this little hour and a half gem to be very entertaining in a lot of weird ways um, I started watching it and I was immediately kind of like once they, they showed up together uncomfortable because that's what you're supposed to feel. Exactly. That awkwardness. And, you know, yet at the same time, it's hilarious kind of and it, it it's that kind of cringe. It is <laughs> cringy, kind of cringing. Yes. You're cringing throughout it. But the problem was that I was just like, you know, what, I'm going to try to watch it. Jimmy had mentioned this, but I was watching it on my laptop. Do you okay. know? And. So I, I kind of, when I was getting to the cringe parts, I was just kind of like, you know, I'm just going to take a break for a sec because I'm, I'm like, you know. <laughs> Too uncomfortable. Too uncomfortable. <laughs> Whereas I could see, you know, it, it if you saw this as a play or if you saw it in the theater in one go, I mean, it really has, I would imagine, the, the impact. I wish I could see it with a big audience that like knew, you know, and it'd be a fun to go to a festival That was like a festival audience. Yeah. I would think a festival audience that was keyed. So like you could see where it won Sundance. Yeah. And um, and that's the thing is I, I could see where it would have an effect on an audience that say like even, you know, a, a sparse audience at the Angelica or like Lincoln Center wouldn't have that vibe kind of yeah, watching I could it. see where this probably <laughs> played for a week at the Angelica <laughs> Film Center. Yes. It played for a while. It, it, it did. It, well, see, yeah, I mean, where I was at the time, it may have played in Cambridge, but. Right. But I mean, it, um, I, I thought it was terrific. I, a couple of things about it. First of all, I mean, it did have that. I mean, I saw it was produced by Good Machine, you know, Ted Hope and James Seamus, who yes. were like, you know, the, you know, um, downtown kind of heroes for, for indie. The Tribeca feel. Right, 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 right. And at moments, though, I mean, when I was watching this, it really brought back a sense of nostalgia. And I'm sure you did for, and, and I say this, 
you know, it, at times it felt, it really felt indie, the visual look of it. And I mean by yeah, like, this the use like of like the, the real student indies, film right. or a little bit or like this, the use of gels at certain times. Like this, this was the sense of nostalgia, the use of like gels in the one scene where she's telling the story, the dolly at times where I could almost like feel the sound blankets underneath like this kind of rudimentary <laughs> had that had that tom DiCillo <laughs> yeah exactly exactly like where that you can feel the, yeah yeah he's making he's that uh, living in oblivion yeah 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 <laughs> so you know and that like uh um on oh, uh, you could just feel like the rug is taped down and stuff with like every everything's gaffer taped everywhere and like it just you know kind of it had it brought me back to student films and indie films of of yesteryear you know um some of the the movements and um and 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 sometimes I I, I imagined you like the framing. Did you imagine that? <laughs> I yeah, I did. No, I did. I thought that's the <laughs> well, thing. Well, you've been. Do you know why I say that? Because the last couple of episodes, you've been you've been taught that's like your like shot composition. Well, I mean, when you're talking about a bottle movie, right? You have to pull off a lot in an hour and a half uh, and keep it interesting. And right. that's where, like, again, the dynamics of this first. It makes it look like wow, who could afford a uh, you know a, a, as a uh, administrative assistant? How could she afford but, but, a place? But, but, well, you no, know, wait, what? wait. But at back fir- then, go ahead. At, well, no, but at first you think, how could you afford it? However, as you start to move around the scene, you realize that she has just gussied up an old dusty loft studio apartment that, at the time, where it where it turns out that it's actually in, it's not in like some ritzy section of Manhattan. You could get, you remember that in like the early nineties, there was these people had these uh, loft spaces the and they Absolutely. turned it into something. Yeah. And we used to go to a lot of these places and stuff and people, and, and that's it. And, but you had to be a little bit out of the way. So this place was a little bit more on the West side, sort of, you know, uh, and, and these kind of uh, neighborhoods that weren't in the village, but were like village adjacent, you know, and you could get these huge spaces because, you know, I mean, even even there, things could get a little dicey. Yeah, it was like around Varick Street or something. Yes, exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And um, so I, all of that stuff, um, I just thought was, you know, terrific. What else was I going to say was that um, I, I, so the, the the look of it, you know, did feel very down. Like, I mean, very, very student film. Well, when you, so I, I watched, I started watching up upstairs in uh, my bed, like, like late at night was watching it. But then for the last part of it, I switched down to my big, big screen TV downstairs and you could see how like grainy and like 16 millimeter it was. And you just didn't notice that upstairs on my, like maybe like 50 inch versus my 75 inch. Right. And I actually appreciate, I was like, wow, look at it. I was like, this really is like that independent film, isn't it? <laughs> Right, right, right. And and it, it where it kind of felt that was when she's telling the story a little bit, like I said, and it, it becomes a little bit, um, I, I guess you'd say expressionistic kind of with uh, the everything changing, the color changing and, you know, her, you know, um, being shot through the house. I understand I love that. that um, I, I love that too. I really do. I'm not, I mean, I know it sounds like a knock by saying it has a real indie kind of, but it does. It just kind of, I don't know, it reminds me of. Well, then, because then this was 94. And what happened is you'd have a whole explosion in the next several years of that sort of 90s yes. indie movie thing. And, and and yeah, absolutely. And the thing about this, though, I have to say is it reminds me of that time, the promise of independent film. 
And I think this film delivers it. The idea of shooting different stories in a different way. And that's what indie film was really supposed to be. You know, that that idea that, you know, Truffaut, when he was talking about the new wave, said that we want to shoot different stories in a different manner. And and that's what I think everyone was hoping. Then those Dogma 95 boys came around and messed it all up with their <laughs> digital cameras and their rules. <laughs> They broke the, the promise. Yeah, damn Vinterberg. There well, I mean, that's another thing is the technology kind of ruined the independent film. Um, right. Because, because then everybody could, you know, just grab a, and, you know, uh, what was it, an XL1 and, you know. Well, and then it just, they don't, they look too, glo- like they don't look down and dirty enough. That was always my complaint because I loved the charm of a lot of these low budget indie films was that it looked rough and tumble. And right. now You'll see the slickness, it looks overlit, and you also, the flaws, the filmmaking flaws, the maybe bad framing and the not really, it's really noticeable because a lot of these people just start shooting the shit out of things because they've got, you know, nonstop footage. And so like, let's go. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, handheld, move it around. Like, there's no real thought about how do I want to tell a story? Yeah. Well, this this was definitely I, I you know, I, I thought just incredibly well done. I understand that Charlie Kaufman It's one of his favorites. I read. Yeah, that's I read that and I, I was thinking about that. Well, did you yeah. see I'm thinking of ending things? Yeah, that on your recommendation. Did you like it? I Yes, I did. No, no, I did. I'm gonna I'm gonna play back wait, I'm gonna rewind the tape. Here you hear did you like it? I don't know. Um, yes, sure. I loved it, Jimmy. Um, I, <laughs> um, it. Uh, I, I mean, again, it's not exactly a pleasurable view. Well, experience. of course not. Right, right, right. But I can understand why Kaufman would like this movie. A hundred percent based upon that. I, I really could see that. Yeah. Uh, so again, the, that movie is called What Happened Was. Uh, it stars and directed by Tom Newton, also written by Tom Newton. And one other actor, Karen Sillis, which to me, it's a it's a flat out masterstroke of a performance. Yeah. Uh, and I think just even if you didn't like the rest of the movie, seeing it for her performance alone is great. She's, I I, I mean, on she is a force of nature, I think. Yeah. Just like How she didn't become a big superstar from this performance. It's a shock to me. Right. I mean, and, and I have to say, it's one of the best performances I've seen in ages. And and his performance is also fantastic. Yeah. And, and part of the thing, you know, just even how we started out talking about this, about him playing Buffalo Bill, the serial killer, that's the thing that also no, added to me. No, he didn't play me. Buffalo Bill. That's... Not Buffalo no, in um, no, not Buffalo Bu- Bill. I yeah, apologize. Right. Yeah, he's well, the, the Red tooth Dragon. Fairy. He, he's who's... the Tooth Fairy. Red Dragon. Right. Thank yes, you. The Tooth Fairy. Yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. So he and not and and by mind you, not in that uh, reboot. We're talking no, about Manhunter, the original Man version Hunter. where Joan Allen is the blind woman. And right. 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 And, he, and William uh, Peterson. He brings, her, he brings her to fondle the tiger. And, yeah. uh, and everything, but uh, it uh, that added. To a certain extent, to some of the disturbing moments, the uncomfortable. Well, I think moments. right, it puts you on edge. That's what that he brings in, right? His past performances, so you're not sure where's this guy gonna go, right? Because we always know him's playing. And then there are moments where she, you think that she's gonna become, yeah, unhinged, and it's gonna take. And and that's the thing you keep thinking it's gonna take maybe a sort of melodramatic turn, turn. yeah, you know that like something's gonna happen, blood is gonna get spilt. 
No. But that's why I think it's great is, uh, you know, we uh, they, the Malcolm Gladwell uh, book of essays, uh, Blink, and mm-hmm. it talks about how there's sort of this thing within the first five seconds when people meet, they kind of are able to form an opinion of the other one. Yes. And that when dates work, there's something that happens in that first five seconds. There's a connection. So both sides are really willing to put in the effort because they want something more to happen. But right. when when it doesn't have that, like only one side or the other, that's when things get awkward. And I think that's what this film captures is that these two people have come together for a dinner. Yeah. But it's just, they're not suited for each other. And, and Jimmy, and it's this beautiful seesaw of affection or of, of, of attention that happens that's, I think, brilliant. Well, also, she has to play, she has to play someone who's getting drunk throughout the evening. And it's amazing that she actually feels like you're, see, you're feeling the effects of the wine. Yes, absolutely. And, and I mean, there are moments where, like, you know, she's sending out signals to him that are so strong and he's just totally <laughs> clueless um and and it's funny it's because but this is where you really start to think you're, you're putting yourself inside the character's heads of like mm-hmm. well geez you know sure maybe i'm attracted to this person but by taking it to another step i don't want to go out with this person but now we work together and and you, he's so insecure remember she even like emasculates him early yes. on in the in the proceedings by saying that oh well you're just not you know you're not very confident that's what i noticed about that's you. right i always say that yeah, that's right that's right that's right oh my god and she's clearly yeah. right right so she yeah. sees through this guy <laughs> but she also thinks he's really funny and stuff um and that's it but like it's the whole idea it's like um she's almost like we're gonna be this band of wacky like misfits like because we're both kind of like different, you know, than all the the suits who like you know live up in New Rochelle and commute into you know the office and, and stuff. He somehow thinks that he's been like fooling people, and she's revealing him, and he doesn't like that. Like mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, another mm-hmm. thing about her character, and then we should probably move on to another movie because we you know no, but it's just this movie is a very rich movie to talk about. Yeah, her so character. Well, I'm gonna go take my when I was uh, like seven or eight. Yeah, I mean, no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, no, no, I was eight. I was eight years old and Saturday Night Fever had come out that December before when I was still seven and it was a huge monster smash, right? That and Star yep. Wars were like these big smashes. It was yep. such a smash that the studio did something that they just wouldn't do something like this anymore is they did a recut of the movie to make it PG. PG, yes. Because so many kids wanted to see the dance scenes. And my parents took me and my sister to see this PG film because they loved it, right? (laughs) They loved this movie. And it was our local town theater. I was living in like Lexington, Massachusetts at the time. They had this tiny little theater, which uh, people may have seen this theater, by the way, in the movie The Fighter when uh, Marky Mark takes uh, Amy... (laughs) Uh, Adams, Adams out to like that weird little theater to go see like Bella Puck. Well, they go to Lexington uh, and that's the theater that I went and saw Saturday Night Fever in. And of course I thought it was the most boring movie ever as a kid because I just couldn't understand what the hell was going on. Plus he cut out all so much stuff that it probably made it even more confusing. Except for, you know, it was fun to see the dance stuff, but I just thought they would be dancing more, you know? There isn't really a lot of dancing in Saturday Night No, Fever. no, no, no. There's a lot of sitting around the dinner table and, you know, hitting Travolta's hair and stuff. So the central relationship where Travolta is trying to, like there's Donna Pescow, right? She wants yeah. to be with him, but he thinks, you know, go away, you're, you know, you're beneath me. But then yeah. the girl that he wants to be dancing 
Stewart's partner is with, she is like, you know, she's moved to the city and she's like, you know, way better than he is. And as a kid, I was kind of, I recognized enough that I'm like, wow, she's really sophisticated compared to him. And it just doesn't see the pairing. Right. And it wasn't until, of course, seeing it years later, when I was older. But the, but the movie's still kind of condescending to her. Well, you know, well, her well no, but I realized when I saw it later, it was like, you know, she's very much like the Karen Silla's character. She yes. is somebody trying to escape her roots, but she really isn't much more sophisticated than, uh, you know, uh, Travolta, who also wants to escape his roots. He just hasn't escaped yet. Right. And and whereas the Tom Noonan character, you know, that he had gone to law school, he had gone to an Ivy League school. Well, we think. And, yeah. We don't well, even know. I mean, At he, the end, we're not sure. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it was the idea he went, but... Well, yes, we don't know. I mean, but that's the thing is, what if, what at the end, do we really know what is the truth with this guy? I think we do. I think he you kind think of You think he really did go to Harvard, I, I, though? I think I think he did, and I think that's part of the thing is, um, I, I think he reveals himself. I mean, he's basically, it's like he's kind of naked in front of her at the end, and she's like, well, I'm not, you know, I'll just leave it at that. Mm. You know, he reveals he's not himself, really I think. people. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, there's a few other films that- uh, that you watched. Uh, I did. On I my behest. behest. Uh, you, yes, yes, yes. You gave me, coach, you give me the, uh, you know, the play, I run it. I okay? like it. Um, and uh, so which one would you like? I, I think we should talk about uh, California Split first. A hundred percent. Yeah. We recently lost actor that a lot of young folks probably don't know too well, but if you he were on the 70s, man, this guy was everywhere. It was uh, George Siegel. Yeah. George Siegel was in a lot of films, and so I knew him as a kid because he was in stuff. As a matter of fact, one of the first things that I really remember him from is going to the drive-ins. I think we were seeing Silver Streak with my grandma at the drive-ins, <laughs> and the first movie showing was some film I'd never heard of before, but uh, my my mom and, and grandma liked uh, Goldie Hawn. It was this movie called The Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox. Oh, Yeah. And it was sort of a Western, which was as a kid, wasn't my favorite genre, but uh, it was for me, I thought it was hilarious. And it was just like pairing with like George Siegel and (laughs) Goldie Hawn. And I loved it. So like, so George Siegel made an impression on me. And then of course he's in, he was nominated for an Oscar for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Right. And he was in a lot of other things. Uh, there was this movie that, it's funny, it was actually nominated for Best Picture. And this is one of those head scratchers that it was ever nominated for Best uh, Picture. And it's kind of a screwball comedy about a guy trying to have an affair and everything goes wrong. Is a touch of class with Glenda Jackson. And she won Best Actress yes. that year. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, People were actually surprised because they thought that like Ellen Burstyn was going to win for uh, – you know, the uh, horror movie there. Uh, the Exorcist. Exorcist, right. But instead, uh, Glenda Jackson won for Touch Glass. And then the movie's been pretty much forgotten for the last, like, 50 years. I've actually never seen it. But I also I also knew him from King Rat. From King Rat, which I also think is on Criterion this month. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, that's, they're doing a little mini seagull. Uh, so they had uh, King Rat. When we, when we were kids, he was ubiquitous. He was in a lot of stuff. And he, and I'm going to say some of it, I, I, I always had a kind of ambivalent feeling about it. Well, yeah, yeah. That's the whole thing is he was kind of schmaltzy sometimes, like in his comedy roles. Uh, yes. So Criterion's doing this little mini mini seagull. Uh, King Rat's one. I've never seen it. So maybe I'll check that out. Uh, the yeah, Hot Rock, which is Peter Yates. There's a little caper movie. You see, and that's, I didn't finish watching it. I oh, you did? 
did watch some of it. I did watch some of it um, just because, so it's a, a Donald E. Westlake novel. Yeah, well, there's a of series so, of them that he did. With that's this, right, the Dort, the Dortmunder. Dortmunder, yeah. Yeah, the, the, Woefully miscast Robert Redford. Robert Redford, exactly. Totally wrong. But I see, like, I loved The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Oh yeah, uh, I love it. Peter I, Yates I, did. I do love. I, I'm Eddie sure. Goyle. I'm sure you love the Friends of Eddie Goyle. Yeah, it's a great and Boston movie. Like that's a really good Boston. That movie. is. That is. I think one of the best Boston movies. And uh, and and Mitchum's incredible in it. But anyway, um, so I wanted to see. I, I. It's it's all around the Brooklyn Museum. And when I was a kid, if it was a rainy day, that's where we went was the Brooklyn Museum. So um, I was kind of excited to watch it, but. It just the the tone of it, it since it is kind of a caper. Yes. It's trying to be kind of light, and I don't feel like it works. And this is the George Siegel that I'm not a huge fan of. He's he's overacting. Yes. Yeah. 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 And and it's his comedic um, persona, which I'm not a huge fan of. But I have to tell you that the California split, which which we were coming to. I think his performance is phenomenal. It's masterful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So California Split is one of these things for years. I'd hear about it. I'd hear people talking about it. It always brought it up. It's one of those Altman films in, in the 70s where I thought Altman did so many great things. It was the one in the repertoire that I hadn't seen. Right. Me too. And and when people would talk about it, they they talk about, my God, what a streak Altman has had of films. You look at The Long Goodbye. You look at California Split. You look at Nashville. Um, uh, Thieves Like Us. Thieves Like Us. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And, and MASH. And MASH. And that's yeah, all around like a five-year period, by the way. He just cranked it out. Cranked it out. So a few years ago, I caught it. And actually, it was when we first started the, doing this show. Uh, Teal, I told Teal about it. And it was on this station called MGM. And I was so desperate to see it that I watched it even though the 235 was blown up to fit the screen. Mm-hmm. And then recently, it was on Amazon Prime. And I rewatched the first half of it. And now it's on Criterion, uh, and I rewatched the entire thing. And I have so much I could say on this film now. Well, go ahead. Uh, go well, ahead. but I mean, you, you, so you watched. I, I had never, I had never seen it before. Right. Yeah. And so you didn't know anything about it. I just knew it was about gambling. Right. So what did what were your so what are your first impressions of this movie California Split? Besides the fact that there's some dated elements, we'll say it right off the bat. There's some stuff that they would not have in a movie today, but. <laughs> Okay, so I I thought it was terrific. I think the performances by two actors who I'm at times kind of ambivalent about, like Elliot Gould, you know, again, sometimes his persona, I find it annoying. But what I, I when he is with Altman. Three movies, his best performances are the three with Altman, MASH, yes. Long Goodbye, and this film. Yeah, he's the absolutely. only He's the only one who knew how to find what Gould did great and put it on screen. Right, 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 and and not the kind of uptight Gould of Bob and Carol. Um, right. You know, this is um, you really get the sense that this is who Gould is. It's him uh, improving a bit, and he's he's funny. He's um, you know uh, he's um, a little manic. A little yeah, he's a fully formed character. Absolutely. So he's a he's a professional. You gambler. feel like that's a real guy that you're watching and not Elliot yes. Gould. Yes, 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 yes. And that he's he's like living a, a lifestyle of a gambler and everything like everything's a bet and he's constantly doing it and he's constantly talking and he's a kind of guy be kind of fun to hang out with. You get that sense. And Siegel at is 
Also, I think it's actually even a better performance from Siegel because he's kind of a, the quieter performance. But there are moments where the two of them have been drinking and they're starting to like dance around and stuff. That's just fun. It feels, you know how you were talking about um, uh, when we were talking about um, another round when the guys were, were sort yes. of hanging out. Like there's this moment where they're they're drunk and they're kind of dancing to the car that feels very real and um, just fun. Uh, it looks like they're they're having a good time, and so it's it's basically these guys, these two gamblers. Um, one who is a writer, not really a gambler. He's just kind of dabbles in it. And Elliot, that that's George Siegel, and Elliot Gould, who is more of a professional. Just how George Siegel gets sucked into the life. Well, it, 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 they're both, I guess, gambling addicts in different ways. But you're right. Elliot Gould is the professional gambler. George Siegel is the gambling addict right i mean he's he's in debt to a bookie and his marriage is he's separated and obviously this was a problem right and it's now you know this gambling thing is creeping into his work and you have the sense that it's not going to be long before he's not even working there anymore right he's right. he's on he's on the prefaces of literally losing it all in his life yes and and you really get that feel and I think the film captures um because I I don't gamble. No, neither do I. No. Yeah, and but I know like some people who are like serious, serious gamblers. And um you kind of see when they have that high when they're on yeah. a streak and it's going and it's like actually kind of fun to be around when somebody's like that and there's this i mean real like the sense of like that the, the energy captures, the mania it's it's like manic like i'll never forget i knew this guy who was a big big gambler and um he was on a hot streak and like i knew like he was you know just hitting all the time and so i'm walking down the street one day and i see him sitting in his car it's like really early in the morning and he'd been up obviously gambling and he has in his car, I go up and I, I go say hi to him. He has a huge stack of scratch off cards. He's been sitting there because he was so hot. He just wanted, he was like, I'm going to get like, uh, I'm going to hit. And on his chest is just, you know, the silver scratch. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's so sad. <laughs> You know, and, uh, but I mean, he, it, that was the thing he was, and that movie, the movie captures that kind of energy where it's like all of a sudden, and, and, and I, I want to compare this back again to another round. It is a way of like the thing about gambling. And I, this has been said before. It is a way you get the sense of, um, busting out of the banality of everyday life. That somehow, right. If you win, if the, the winning big could change things for you. Not just yes. like your luck in gambling, but your luck in life is going to change. And there's just the the thrill, the kind of edge of your seat. Okay, I've got it all riding on this. You know that it's that it's very very important, and you really kind of feel that where everything all of a sudden has consequence. To talk about that for a second, and just the brilliance of the filmmaking is that the film is sh kind of it's all handled and shot in an almost very documentary like approach. And how yeah. these gambling scenes are done um, from the from the background dialogue of the eight track uh, recording system that he did to just the way it's shot, you have to wonder how the hell did he pull it off because it feels so genuine. That energy 
is so real feeling that you feel like somebody is on a hot streak. Like that, that thing with the craps table, I have gone, I have been to Vegas a couple of times and I have to say that out of all the games that they have there, the most fun is, is the craps table because right. it is literally something where it's just fun to be at the table. You can just put a, like a little bit of money there and there's a million ways to play that game when you're there. Uh, but the energy when somebody's on a hot roll is insane. And the way it was handled in this movie is so great that you felt like you were watching a documentary. Like that yes. was really like you were watching a security camera and it was really happening. It reminded me of the visual style, a little bit of the long goodbye, kind of the, the moving cameras, a lot of the zooms kind of pulling back yes. uh, as well that I, I really like um, that look with Altman, you know, how he does that. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't shot by Velo uh, Sigma, right. but it, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's this camera that it's always shot with that long lens and zoom. And so it's far mm-hmm. back. And I think that all, again, adds to the reality, but here's something, this movie and we watching it, it helped explain something of what I always loved. Um, there's a realism that I like that I feel like it takes me out of other movies. Mm-hmm. And this is this idea of this eight track recording where he would mic different actors and you'd have a lot of different conversations going on and like real life, you know, if you're in a crowd, you hear a bunch of different things right. and it's not just like, oh, we're at a restaurant and you only hear the two actors and you have all these extras behind that are just pretending. Right. And it really feels that way. It feels like you've got a bunch of extras. Whereas this it's uh, it's one of those things that was always interesting about Fellini, where his characters look like people. Like, where did he find these people? They're so interesting. Right. right. And, so the lady playing the piano bar and stuff. Yeah. And or so the lady Altman's got these very these interesting real people. But then you hear these conversations. But then watching this movie, I realized there was something brilliant going on with these conversations. A lot of times, you would hear the conversations happening first before you picked up the main action. Mm-hmm. But what Altman did in many scenes is that even though the conversations had nothing to do directly with the plot or what was going mm-hmm. on in the movie, the thing, these background conversations told you more about what was happening with, say, George Siegel, his character, or the situation without them having to have a conversation about it. Right. Uh, there's that scene, and it's so great, um, even though it's, again, not not really uh, kosher for today's uh audiences where George Siegel has really down on his luck. It's probably after he's had the conversation with his bookie and he's sitting in the bar by himself. And by the way, that's a, that's a great scene because the bookie's not too heavy. No, it's a great, <laughs> I think it's a realistic and, bookie and, scene. And, it's great. I love absolutely. it. He's got his and, own and, issues and going the book, on. And the, bookie, and the bookie also, the thing that's hilarious is that the bookie's on crutches. Yeah. Yeah. Like the bookie <laughs> has his issues going on. So he's in this bar and you, and you know, you see him and he's sad and he looks like any other person that you see in these in these bars that is, is down on his luck. And then you hear mostly this conversation. That lady. That lady. Now you're listening to everything she's talking about and what she's talking about men. And it's telling you everything about what a loser George Siegel is. And what he's feeling like. And what he's moment. feeling like without ever having to have like, you know, a voiceover from him or somebody having a conversation so you can find out. He doesn't even think say anything in the scene. And and that's the thing is like we, we were talking. You guys were talking uh, about Mads Mikkelsen's performance, kind of just like the look on his face and not having to say anything. And um, I really felt that was Siegel. 
I mean, it's, it's, you know, when, when he's sitting there and not saying anything while she's talking. Yeah. Well, he's definitely an observer. And so like, that's this journey he goes on. And at the end, when he has that like major, that's another thing I like about the movie is that you're thinking like where in a film like this, everything's great until he loses it all. Uh, But in this film, right? So they actually have a lot of luck in the movie. However, yes. some of the downfalls are they keep getting mugged or robbed and <laughs> yes. other things. That's how they're losing their money. Uh, but like at the end, you're expecting that the win streak, they bet it all and they lose it or something. And that's not uh, right. No, you're, you're expecting kind of the traditional Hollywood, like the wages of sin yeah. kind now, of ending. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen. Well, like will Siegel go like, will he actually even take that money and like pay off his bookie and all the other things? Will it change his life? We don't know. But what we, we know. do know is that he hit a high that scared him. Yes. And it's all crashing down. And, you know, maybe he, this will be the end of that phase. Uh, but if you think about it, his pairing with Elliot Gould, which they're great pairing, they're really not a good pair because a lot of bad misfortune happens because of them being together. Right. Um, right. And, and, and you can see where he wins. He won't let, he won't let Elliot Gould be near him. That's right. And it's that kind of magical thinking that comes with, with gambling. This There's kind of all that. Like, though the entire movie. Remember, remember the best part is that they're at the boxing match and Elliot Gould reaches over the guy and he makes a bet for his hat. That's right. And then the guy's lucky hat has to go to Elliot Gould. <laughs> and it's like all those kind of things happening throughout the movie because Gould, you clearly, they've like set him loose and it can't, th- that can't have all been written. He had to have just no, been coming up no, with that stuff. No, I think I, that's it. And um, he gives a really terrific performance. The one-armed piccolo player. <laughs> that was a great, that's another great scene. That's another great scene that you know that they just like, oh, I want to do this bit. Yeah, they're just goofing around. And I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, part of, um, the, the great fun about say that and the long goodbye is, is like Altman playing in like the sandbox and just kind of like, and know, I love hey. the long goodbye. It's one of my favorites. I know it is. Me too. Me too. It's, it's but then there's also this thing where they, they hook up with these sort of like, I guess they're like call girls in a sense, the uh, Anne Prentice, who's Paula Prentice's sister. I know. And I looked up Anne Prentice, boy, that's an interesting story. And then another, she's an Altman, she was in several Altman things, but uh, Gwen Wells, I loved Gwen Wells. She died yeah. too young of cancer, but uh, she was always an interesting actress to watch. And she pops up in a lot of things in the 70s. And yeah. she was also in Nashville. Um, she was, That's right. She was somebody that uh, the guy wanted to be a singer. She was a terrible singer. But, you know, there are these girls that Elliot Gould kind of hangs out with and- the, those are interesting scenes, right? And this is where George Siegel's kind of dropped in on this other person's life. Right, right, and right, right. He's just kind of hanging. And then suddenly it's that whole thing where like, oh yeah, now you're hanging with these people and doing yes. things with these people. And I found that it was just, again, it wasn't heavy on the plot. It was just very interesting stuff going on there. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it just had um, a great feel, I, I, I think, through the, and, and um, a great energy running through it that um, that felt relaxed. And and again, part of it is, um, as you were talking about, that um, the, the sound. Now, I, I had understood that Altman had always um, mic'd people, say like in MASH, he does the same thing, but he used to kind of mix it on the set. Uh, I think, or at least they used to kind of mix it down, but. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know that he did the multi-track in um, the McCabe and Mrs. Miller and the studio hated it because they found it so hard to understand what people were saying and stuff. Um, 
And the eight track recording, it, again, it's just why to do it wasn't just so that you'd have it like sound more natural. I think there was a whole thing going on between the way it was filmed and it also allowed him to selectively have these conversations in there. Um, but I actually feel like what he must be doing here with this movie is incredibly complicated to actually pull off because why don't more filmmakers do it? I don't think it's easy. I think it's really hard. Right. And he did it masterfully in several movies um, and probably The Pinnacle, which hasn't aged very well. Um, but Nashville is really, I think, the height of him being able to weave multiple stories and conversations and it all kind of gelled into one piece. Right. I haven't seen it in a while. Is it on Criterion? Uh, no. Uh, and then, of course, The Player, right? That was his major, major comeback. That was also- That is, that's on That's on Criterion, yeah. right. And that, of course, has his, you know, the, the camera movements, the sound, and, and, and a good script to go with it, I think, um, right. was that. And uh, so, California Split's not just part of this George Siegel uh, collection that Criterion's doing. They're kind of double dosing with another series they have going on on gambling. And I initially kind of resisted it because I felt like I'd seen a lot of the movies I wanted to see in The Gambling. But there was one film that I had I had missed. And I said, well, maybe it's time I sit down and watch this film. And I was shocked at how good it was, was this yes. film from the late 90s called uh, Croupier. Mm -hmm. And it has uh, the guy from uh, Children of Men in it there. Right, Clive Owen. Clive Owen. Clive Owen. This is the film that put him on the map. Yes, I, I. That's the thing, and I was never a huge fan of him, uh, of his. And I have to say that I, I think he gives a great performance in it. I think he's he's really quite. I, I was surprised at how good the movie was. Um, I put it on very low expectations, despite the fact that I'm a. I like Mike Hodges, who directed it, who did Get Carter and uh, Flash Gordon. I have to mention that. And yes, he did. He did. Uh, <laughs> he did. Flash Gordon. <laughs> yes. Okay, so Croupier. I forced you to watch Croupier, and you liked it. It's better than anything Guy Ritchie has ever done. <laughs> Guy Ritchie. He's got some new movie out now. Does he? Supposedly. Um, I, it's just, I think it's it's a great film. It's a great character. Clive Owens really um, gives a, a very kind of strong performance where he has to be kind of a, a sphinx. You know, he's not revealing a lot. He's observing. Um, you know, it's a movie with voiceover. And, you know, I know a lot of people like voiceover is problematic in a lot of ways, but here it works very well. Well, it's funny. There's two things, right? So that's funny is that there's the, the voiceover aspect and... A person. It's it's a movie about a writer's and a, and a writer's process, which uh, Teal complained uh, several episodes ago that that's usually not doesn't work out well. But I thought this was a great film about a writer's process, and the voiceover is very effective in this particular one. Yes, you know, I I, I think so too, absolutely, and. Um, you know, it it all ties together very well. I I I think I I watched it last night, and I told you I was immediately hooked into it. Yeah, so you watched the whole thing. Yeah, straight in one shot. Yep, yeah, last yeah. night. No, yeah, it's it's a it's a fun little uh, pop. -up. Also, another good film about gambling. Yes, absolutely. And and I don't know if did you guys talk about is Hard Eight part of that? 
Hard Eight is part of that. That's a film where I rewatched it. I thought at one point we were going to do a whole Paul Thomas Anderson episode, which we still have not done yet. And it's funny is there was one time where Dylan and I were starting to talk about Inherent Vice, and then he had some recording uh, problems. And so we never got back to that. <laughs> um, and I love Inherent Vice. But Hard Eight is a movie that starts off pretty good, but then when it starts to get a little bit plot heavy at the end, it kind of falls apart for me in the last half hour. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. I can see that. But I, I just think it's, um, uh, I really like, um, it's actually Gwyneth Paltrow has one performance in there that I actually kind of like. What's her second performance in there? No, no, no. I mean, this. <laughs> You're like she's got one performance in there. I'm well, like she's think, got think, one because that's, that's the I only think, one. I, I think I think it's the only performance that I've I've seen that I like of hers. Well, okay, so yes, yeah, Croupy. Do we have any? I guess it was like wow, we liked it. We had nothing to say about it, but we had tons to say about what happens was with Tom Noonan and Karen Sellis, and uh, that's the one I guess to see. And the Hot Rock. You so you saw the Brooklyn Museum. I, I saw. I've I've gotten about halfway through it, and I've gotten to the point where um, Zero Mostel shows up. That's and- when. <laughs> yeah, you need some ham. And on I your was rye. Just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bring in the zero. <laughs> and, you know, and it's great. It's great. But it's just, I, I, I think I was expecting a different movie. And, you know, and, and the thing is, you can kind of tell right away because the Quincy Jones score is very light. Oh, I love the Quincy Jones score. It's, it, cool. it's, it's a very good because it's Quincy Jones. But at the same time, it's, um, it's light. And I, I kind of, like I said, when I heard, I was like, wait. Uh, this is a Donald E. Westlake, and it's Peter Yates, and a shot in Brooklyn all around the time that um, he made the Friends of Eddie Coyle. You know, it's a heist movie. I was so you're thinking, thinking oh. gritty. Yes, yes, but it's not yes. like new, and um, it, it. But at the same time, I could watch it on a loop just because of the locations. All right, so you 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 got to Zero Mostel. Did, did you get to where they have to try to break out their friend? Yeah, from break out of jail. Yes. Did you see yeah, that yeah. part? No. Okay, so. That's to me where it really falls apart because there's this thing where, say, you get this person out of prison, and in real life, everyone, there'd be a manhunt looking for this guy. One hundred percent, and, and also them doing the robbery with no gloves. Yeah, any of this stuff. Like, so it's it's set piece after set piece, uh, and I definitely think you should continue because there's a set piece. Com- there's a set piece coming up after this next set piece that features a helicopter. Uh, in, I mean, it's really shot with a real helicopter going through. Lower Manhattan, and which is early seventies, and you can see the World Trade Center being built, and they're like zooming through the location, and it's kind of hair raising because you recognize that this isn't like uh, rear screen projection or anything. Like they're really, I don't know how they did this. I don't know how they were allowed to because it seems like with helicopters, maybe they didn't realize how hel- dangerous helicopters were back then. <laughs> because it's really dangerous, and it's it's it. It's kind of worth watching the movie just for that scene. By the way, I'm, there's a great movie bookstore, as you know, at the Museum of the Moving Image, which is opening up, which is opened up already. Oh, yeah, yeah. So is it this weekend or is it next it's, weekend? So, no, no. It, was, it, it opened up already. It no, no. I meant that you're going to go there soon, Oh, I'm right? going I'm going to uh, – next weekend is um, – and I have to buy tickets now before it sells out – 70-millimeter uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. And um, so they're 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 showing they have a Space Odyssey exhibition that's on right now um, that they have um, things from the movie. Yeah, and they always have stuff. had things from the movie. No, they have, but they uh, they have a whole they a got whole more new, stuff. 
they have more they got more stuff somehow um and they um are showing it both in 35 and in 70 millimeter but as i discussed well i i think they want to they want to preserve the 70 millimeter print and not show it as often um, oh. so yeah 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 so i mean hey you remember you made a big deal about the 70 millimeter print in the the episode a while i know back, well you and, and i were there you so you're gonna get to, to see it, it again there yes yes yeah. i have so seen kid- it now so many times i'm not i don't think i'm ever gonna see it in the theater again all right well this has been fun as always bill yeah, thank you jimmy um, thank I, you that's that's it i'm always happy to to bust chops with you yeah and it's fun to get you know it's fun to watch some movies and uh, examine them and even though california split right i knew i liked it uh, but it would have been harder for me to have pinpointed some of these specifics if I hadn't rewatched it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, these movies that we've been talking about are all available right now on the Criterion channel. And it's something that if you haven't subscribed to, I mean, come on, people, cough it up. It's like $110 a year. And it's just so good. There's so many movies. Well worth it. Oh, yeah. Well worth it. I mean, it. I've got so many films that I'm in like little progress of. Sometimes I'm starting a new thing. I'm watching uh, this film uh, called Han. Uh, Arnett, the the uh, the philosopher who attended mm-hmm. the uh, the trial of Eichmann, right? Um, so that's kind of interesting watching that. Uh, you know, lots of stuff, lots of stuff. Always got something new to watch on there. Absolutely, no, it's well worth it. It uh, really helped me get through the pandemic. Oh yes, I mean it's been a pandemic helper for sure, and uh, we still got the pandemic. Oh, except for the you know, moving images opening up, so I guess the pandemic's over. And and also uh, they're doing uh, uh, Museum of the Moving Image is also doing summer drive-in stuff in uh, in Queens as well. Right. Well, if someday if they do another seventy millimeter festival and there's some films that I haven't seen uh, in seventy millimeter, we'll, we'll definitely be in touch and we'll get down there and we'll watch some stuff. Good. Good. Looking forward. And you can like look on your phone the entire time. <laughs> Text instead of watching the movie. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Having children uh, move ch- through the New York transit oh, system. No, you know? no. I have children. What, what, what were you supposed to do? You what, what could you do? You couldn't do anything. You were in a movie. You weren't going to be able. You were in Manhattan. You weren't going to be able get to the, help get them. them. Get them not to freak out. Yeah. Well, you got to train them. Like the, our day, we would just be out all day, and we had to figure out the solve problems on our own. We, okay. We didn't have any of these phones or anything. Okay. Right. All right. You know how it was. Yeah, I know. All those times you were, you know, 12 years old on the T. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, right. I went out and did things by myself. Anyways, now I'm going to, now we're in fighting mood. That's right. Hey, That's right. hey let's say. Hey. Gads. Hey. <laughs> Gads, you took my, you took my gun, Gads. Yeah, hey, you took my phone. I was texting there. Hey. <laughs> hey, Annette O'Toole. <laughs> No, no, no. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get all angry with you. And stuff. Just yeah. some of us citizens are behind you 100%, <laughs> oh, yeah. officer. Yeah. 100% all the way, officer. <laughs> That's not necessary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, 48 hours, man. The boys are back in town. The boys are back. All right. Good night. All right, Luther. Take care. <laughs> yeah, Luther. Oh, that actor is great. Too. All right. All right. Uh, oh wait wait i gotta do the goodbyes to people uh hey uh stuff we've seen we got a website stuffweseen.com and uh feedback at stuffweseen.com you can just uh write us a message and say why were you too rambling on for <laughs> ad nauseum for an entire morning and uh yeah, give us some feedback yeah say where's yeah. Keel? is what the <laughs> feedback will be he's coming back i don't know where he is he's, he's busy doing something uh, but uh, you know, he'll be back. We'll be the, the regular program will be back uh, at some point. 
<laughs> so you know meanwhile we, we, you know, we got these Saturday morning slots and uh, Bill from Queens is available on Saturday morning so once in a while we're gonna do a Saturday morning show we're gonna work up some new uh, some new uh, impressions for you alright <laughs> alright goodbye